Now, do we have any builders with us this morning? Any, any people who have or currently do work on a construction site? Uh, maybe you're a surveyor or you're actually a, a builder, you get the work done. Anyone? No? No? Okay, Yvonne's pointing to someone, that's fine. Um, well, yeah, I, I, I did once. I worked on a building site and it didn't go very well at all. <laughs> My, my friend had managed to secure a summer job for both myself and him uh, a few years ago. It was kind of between university terms, and I could make a bit of money during the summer. It's a lot of things that a lot of guys back in the UK do uh, when they're at uni. And we were renovating this big house in a town in England. And I was, of course, I had no real knowledge. I was given very basic tasks to do, clean up after the real builders as they do the building work. And in my first week, I managed to put my foot through an exposed floor down into the ceiling of the living room below. And my friend, he just couldn't really believe it. I'd been warned, Tim, whatever you do, don't step there. And of course, what had I done? I had stepped there. You know, thankfully, the boss was a very gracious man. Uh, not only did he let me keep my job, he let me continue uh, working on that site, but he actually paid for the repair costs out of his own money as well to make sure that house did get built, that the people who'd be moving in wouldn't see this massive hole in their living room, uh, in their living room ceiling. Basically, don't ever let me near a construction site, unless it's for the purpose of demolition. I'm pretty good at that, but uh, otherwise, don't let me near it. As we come back to Ezra today, we find a a far more important house in disrepair. Uh, If you've been with us the past few weeks, we've seen since Ezra run, God has, as he promised, brought his people out of exile in Babylon, and by doing so, he's provided for them richly, but with a purpose, so that they might build his house again in Jerusalem the temple that bore his name, that expressed that Israel belongs to him, he belongs to them, he is their covenantal God, he is their provider, he is their Lord, and they are secure with him. And they had got off to a great start in building the temple. We saw that back in Ezra 3. They laid the foundations, but then in Ezra 4, things got a bit tough. Uh, The neighbors who were already in the land, the other peoples who were in the land before they got back, well, they started making trouble. And as a result, God's people stopped building. Between Ezra 4 and Ezra 5, where we're starting in today, 20 years have passed by. Uh, The temple foundations, they look very much like the story of a construction site here in KL. The foundations are there, it's a good start, and then nothing, no progress But God is gracious with his people, and he gets them back to building as they should, and he makes sure that the building gets done so that Israel, his people, might rejoice in him once again. And Ezra 5 to 6 tells us how God does it. So let's pick up the story from chapter 5, verse 1, under our first heading, God gets his people building by his word. Read with me from verse 1. Now the prophets Haggai and Zechariah, the son of Iddo, Prophesy to the Jews who were in Judah and Jerusalem in the name of the God of Israel who was over them. God starts by speaking his word by his prophets to his people because they need a wake-up call. Those 20 years of procrastination have taken their toll. It seems Judah were now, they were busy, but they were far more concerned with other building projects, not the temple of the Lord. We can actually... 
you know, we, we, we'll look on the screen, see what Haggai actually has to say, since we have Haggai as well, thankfully. See what God says through Haggai to his people. This is Haggai 1, 2 to 4. These people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? Haggai goes on to explain how God has withheld his blessing from his people because his people are returning to their old habits. Uh, They're not honoring the God who had saved them to himself who had brought them home, who had restored them as his nation, they were quite happy ignoring his will for them and doing their own thing. Uh, Judah was still prone to drifting from the Lord's ways. But thankfully, it wasn't just Haggai's job to rebuke them, that they might return to work as they did that, as the leaders of Israel repented and got the people back to work. Well, so God says to them in Haggai 2, Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord. Work, for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts. According to the covenant that I made with you when you came out of Egypt, my spirit remains in your midst. Fear not. Fear not. And we see why that's such an important promise for them as we read on in Ezra 5. As they get back to work and the temple slowly starts to be built again, well, it's not long before trouble appears on the horizon. God's people, they have God's promise. I'm with you. Don't fear. And yet that doesn't mean they're not going to face any obstacles. So secondly, God watches over his people by his providence. Have a look in verse 3 of, Haggai, uh, of uh, sorry, Ezra 5, verse 3. At the same time, Tatanai, the governor of the province beyond the river, and Shephabozani and their associates came to them and spoke to them thus, who gave you a decree to build this house and to finish this structure. You can just imagine how God's people feel at this point. They've just got back to work, and already it seems history is repeating itself. Judah had already faced other counselors who had happily taken bribes to frustrate their work on the temple building. You see that back in Ezra 4 verse 1. And now this Tatanai, this Persian governor, who was over the land of Judah, been put there over, over them by the king. He and his fellow building inspectors have turned up and they've started asking questions. They've started an investigation. Are, the, are their pla- uh, planning papers in order? He's asking Judah. Do the Jews basically have planning permission for the temple? You know, I had a nasty case of history repeating itself this past month. A few of you know what happened. I managed in my usual clumsiness to drop my brand new oh-so-precious iPhone onto the drive back at home. And lo and behold, as I guessed it would, I picked it up from the drive and I had a look at it and it was smashed. Actually, there's a picture of it. It was smashed in just a few places and I felt really gutted. This was a new phone, it was a costly phone, and I had dropped it. And so I I took it for repair and and I was warned, Tim, it's not going to be cheap. And they were right. It wasn't to get that screen fixed. Having repaired it, though, I got a, a fairly okay case. Well, I'm not, it's not going to happen again. Get a case with a cover and make sure, even if I drop it, it won't smash. No way it's happening again anytime soon. One week. <laughs> One week goes by. And wouldn't you know, I managed to drop my phone again. And not even onto the drive at home. This time it lands onto a carpet. And it lands on the back, not even the front. And I pick it up and there's a crack along the top of the screen. I, I can't believe it. 
think to myself, what is my dear wife going to say when she finds out I've busted my phone again? Well, thankfully, though, this time, this second time, things actually turned out a bit better. Melissa, my dear wife, was incredibly gracious with me, considering what an idiot I'd been. And as I went back to the iPhone repair shop, well, actually, the guys who had repaired my iPhone in the first place, they were also quite gracious with me. They were quite amused at what I had done, (laughs) and they felt pretty sorry for me. So what did they do? A little bit of haggling, and they gave me a very healthy discount because they felt sorry for me. I mean, who breaks their phone like this twice in as many weeks? It was tough. But thankfully, it wasn't as tough as the first time. Friends, actually, that's what Judah experiences here. It looks like history is repeating itself. Foreign governors are interfering with the temple work again. But notice verse 5. But the eye of their God was on the elders of the Jews, and they did not stop them until the report should reach Darius and then an answer be returned by letter concerning it. This time, unlike before, God doesn't allow foreign officials to interfere with the building work immediately. His watching, caring eye is upon his people. And so Tatanai is compassionate. It seems he's actually just doing his job. He's not trying to be difficult. He's just an attentive governor. And so he lets the building work continue as he files his report with Persian headquarters. And that's what we have in verses 6 to 17. Just skim down the page. You see we've got this report from Tatanai to the king, Darius, asking what to do. Uh, this is the report to, uh, to the king of the current Persian empire, uh, the big boss. Uh, there's a f- formal introduction in verse 7. And then in verses 8 to 10, Tatanai basically just gives him an update. This is what I've seen. He describes the temple, though, in pretty intimidating terms. Have a look in verse 8. We're told it carries the name of the great God. It's being built with huge stones. And Tadonai is probably concerned that this construction in Jerusalem, it's not a temple for the worship of the God of Israel, but it's it's actually the start of of a big fortress right in the heart of Jerusalem, a a critical vassal city to the Persian Empire. And this could be Judah's first step in plans for rebellion. The only way to determine what's really going on at this construction site is to ascertain, did they have any permission in the first place to build this great house? In verse 9, Tatanai explains to the king, I've asked the leaders, who gave you a decree to build this house and to finish this structure? And we got their response in verse 11. The leaders tell them, tell uh, Tatanai to tell the king who they are. We're servants of the God of heaven and earth. We're not merely servants of some local deity as as the king sees it, but the true God who rules all things. And then verses 12 to 17, they give him a brief history of their experience with the God of all creation who had saved them to himself. And how many years before uh, God had caused another great house to be built to his name by his king for his glory. But then their forefathers had turned away from God in sin, rebelled. And so he had, as he said he would, as he warned he would, given them into the hands of their enemies, the Babylonians, Nebuchadnezzar. And that great temple that used to stand on the site was destroyed. But then they speak more positively. As we saw in Ezra 1 a few weeks ago, God raised up Cyrus, king of Persia, who liberated God's people from exile, and God used him to bring them back to himself 
back to his land of promise, loaded with goods that he might rebuild this house. In verse 14, Cyrus had taken what the Babylonians had stolen, all the holy items of the temple that had been removed when they first went into exile, gave them back to the people that they might return and restore the house of the Lord. And so Tadmai ends his report with a simple request in verse 17. Therefore, if it seems good to the king, let search be made in the royal archives there in Babylon to see whether a decree was issued by Cyrus the king for the rebuilding of this house of God in Jerusalem. And the report sent, the Persians had one of the most sophisticated mailing systems. It was state-of-the-art in their day. The report sent, and the Jews, with just a little bit of fear in their hearts, no doubt, continue building. They had God's promise, fear not, but they were no doubt wondering if a Persian army was going to be coming over the hill any minute to put an end to the project again. Well, the report reaches the king, and a search for this decree from Cyrus is begun. And they start looking in the records of the Library of Babylonia. That makes sense. That's where Cyrus began his reign. But no joy. Can't find them there. And fortunately, a search is also made in another place closely associated with Cyrus. In verse 2, we're told about a second search, Ekbatana, in Media. This is where Cyrus had built his holiday home. It was like the Pankor Laut of the Persian kings. And there in this place, a record is found detailing exactly what Cyrus had granted in his edict to the Jews. It's very similar to what we saw in Ezra 1. First, in verses 3 to 4 of chapter 6, we've got this permission from him to build the temple. You remember those large, scary stones that Tatnai spoke of in his report to the king? Well, we're told in verse 4, the temple that Cyrus commissioned was to be built, verse 4, with three layers of great stones and one layer of timber. Just like the great temple of Solomon's day. For those taking notes, you can look in 1 Kings 6.36. 1 Kings 6.36. Here's the proof. Before Darius. The great construction back in Jerusalem, it's not some enemy stronghold. These great stones, they're not to be feared. It is really the worship place of the Jews. And Cyrus has given his stamp of approval for it. And yet there's more. Continuing in verse 4, he says, Let the cost be paid from the royal treasury. Tad and I hadn't mentioned that in his report. Cyrus actually financed the rebuilding of the temple all those years ago. And in the light of this record, so he gives his personal response. First, verse 7, Tad and I is ordered to stand down. Leave the work on the temple alone. Let the work on this house of God alone. Let the governor of the Jews and the elder of the Jews rebuild this house of God on its site. And that's actually all that Tad and I wanted to know. Do the Jews have permission to build the temple or not? And Darius affirms, yes, you leave it alone. Let them get on. But there's more. Have a look halfway through verse 8. The cost is to be paid to these men in full and without delay from the royal revenue, the tribute of the province from beyond the river. Now, of course, Darius had his own motives in wanting to see this temple uh, of God built, you see in verse, halfway through verse 10, that they may offer pleasing sacrifices to the God of heaven and pray for the life of the king and his sons. But wow, I bet Tad and I didn't see this one coming. Not only is he told by the king, you leave the work of the temple alone, you let the Jews rebuild, he's now ordered to finance the project out of his own purse, his own coffers. The province beyond the river is Tatanai's province. 
The taxes of his territory are now going to go and pay for the rebuilding of this temple in Jerusalem. I bet he wishes he wasn't such a paper pusher now. I wish he just left that work on the temple alone. It's going to cost him. Just in case he has any second thoughts about following this costly decree, Darius just attaches a severe warning as well. Basically, you mess with this order, you are going to pay with your life. Have a look in verse 11, halfway through verse 11. Given this gruesome verdict, a beam shall be pulled out of his house, and he shall be impaled on it, and his house shall be made a dunghill. Very clear, pretty threatening. Mess with God's house in Jerusalem, you're going to fit the house of your body, and you're going to fit the house of your earthly home. And so verse 13, understandably, Tatanai and the governors get to work real quick. They do so with all diligence, wouldn't you? In verse 14, the elders of the Jews built and prospered through the prophesying of Haggai the prophet and Zechariah the son of Iddo. It's an incredible reversal of fortune for the Jews. Seemed like it was all going downhill once again, facing another form of powerful foreign opposition. And instead, the opposition turns out for their good. The very foreign power that they feared provides a great gift of provision and protection until the temple is finished. As God continues to speak his word to them and encourage them to build. And we see why things really turn out this way in verse 14. Halfway through verse 14, we're told they finished their building by decree of the God of Israel and by decree of Cyrus and Darius and Artaxerxes, king of Persia. So the, the, king of, uh, the kings of Persia, they might have moved things on the ground. We've got a whole line of them here. We've got Cyrus, Darius, Artaxerxes, uh, these powerful Persian leaders who reigned over Judah during not only the rebuilding of the temple, but also the walls of Jerusalem, what we read about in Nehemiah. And yet God was faithfully working through those kings in their hearts to fulfill his divine decree. He used the seemingly threatening political circumstances of his people's day for their good so that they might rejoice in him. And that's the result, that God's people rejoice in him. In verse 16, the temple is now built and dedicated to God. You see the great number of sacrifices there? Those bulls, those rams, those lambs, all animals that were provided by the order of Darius. The king had made that possible. Finally, God's people could offer up sacrifices to him at the temple as they were commanded to do. It's a sign of their relationship with him. And then we have the Passover in verse 19, the meal that testified to God's faithful deliverance of his people. And they can celebrate again because God has been faithful. The temple standing in their midst. Just have a look in verse 22, the final verse there. And they kept the feast of unleavened bread for seven days with joy. For the Lord had made them joyful and turned the heart of the king of Assyria to them, so that he aided them in the work of the house of God, the God of Israel. You see how Ezra describes the people? They are full of joy in the Lord. God has made them joyful. And he has done so by turning the heart of the king of Assyria, the king of Assyria who for their forefathers was a serious threat, who had first taken them into exile, the northern kingdom. And yet now God, in his faithfulness, has used another foreign king, like the king of Assyria, to aid his people in his work. Oh, they still had a job to do. They still had to fear God's word and so build the temple as he had commanded. But God was carrying them every step of the way. 
so that ultimately they would rejoice. They would be able to love and worship God through the means that he had provided, his temple now standing tall. And as we've seen over the past few weeks, Ezra is all about God restoring his people to himself. And we've reached the high point today in Ezra. The temple's been finished. God's worked through his people by his word. God's worked through his ruling providence in the hearts of kings. And God's worked to restore his people to their joy. But for us today, how do we ultimately know that God works in this way? That God works by his word. And he works through his providence. And he works to restore what is broken in an ultimate way. For the joy of his people. We don't look to a physical building. We don't look to the health of a nation like Judah, as healthy as they were at this point. No, we look to the one whom God has made his true temple now. In whom God's word was obeyed without fault. And through whom God's providence was ultimately working to restore not just one nation, but all nations to God. Jesus was everything that Judah were meant to be. He never strayed from his father's word. He alone was worthy to experience the joy of being in God's presence. Because he alone loved God and loved his neighbor. But it was his faithfulness to that very word, to God's word, in every way that we failed, that led him to the cross. To pay for the failings of others like us. Because we're all like Judah, really. We're guilty of complacency toward the God who made us. We don't seek his will for our lives in and of ourselves. We don't seek our joy in knowing and loving him as we should. No, each of us has turned to our own way. We've gone to our own projects. We look for joy in other things, the things of this world, the gifts of God's creation. But not in the one who gave them. Not in the God who created us to enjoy him above all. And yet on the cross, Jesus took our sin. He took our every failing before God, and there he dealt with it. In his body, on the tree, so that in him we might have reconciliation with the God who we were made to know, who we were made to enjoy above everything else. It's not, and on the cross, it's not only that we see the perfect obedience of God's Son to his word, we see the providence of God working. Have a look in, just coming up in Acts 4. The apostles reflect on the wonder of God's wisdom in the cross. And they say, For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servants, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. The people of Jesus' day wanted to destroy him for their own evil ends, and they thought they had done it. And yet it was all part of God's plan. His sovereign work, as they put Jesus to death, God was reigning to bring about the greatest act of love our broken world has ever known. God's Son, dying in my place and your place, that we might know him again. And we know that that worked. We know that the cross is sufficient because God raised his Son from the dead. He raised his new temple in Jesus. Death is dead. Sin is gone. Christ has conquered. We see that in his resurrection. The new life we can have with God through faith in him. And so as his disciples saw Jesus risen 
from the dead. Luke tells us at the end of his gospel. Oh, it's not there. I'm going to have to read it for you. I'm sorry. They worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple blessing God. They rejoiced, much like the people of Ezra 6, because God had work to restore, to bring us back to himself that we might not perish but have eternal life with him. Friends, do you know this joy? Do you know the joy of sins forgiven, of knowing that even in death, you're secure in the arms of your heavenly Father who gave his Son for you. That you have an eternal future where the brokenness and the suffering of this world is a thing of the past. Have you come to Jesus? Because he alone purchased this joy for us by his blood on the cross. If you haven't, won't you come to him now? Won't you bow the knee to him and have life in his name? And for those of us who have, from Ezra 5 and 6, I think we have a challenge and an encouragement here. Uh, Firstly, the challenge. Are we, as God's people today, building? Are we building? See, God calls us now to be witnesses to Jesus, and he promises that he will use us as we testify to Christ to bring new life to others, to bring others to faith in him. Are we building? by God's word and making it known. Not for you, but for me, the actions of Judah here are quite a challenge. They procrastinated for so many years. Not because they were, weren't busy. They were very busy, but they were busy building their own houses and not the Lord's. And I find that challenging. We all live incredibly busy lives, don't we? There's always something on. The diary is full, but I find I'm very often not very busy telling others about Jesus. I'm sure I'm not the only one. You know, maybe there's a friend or there's a neighbor that we've known for years and we've shared so much of our lives with them, but we've never shared with them the good news of Jesus crucified for our sins. Friends, God gave his one and only son to die that we might truly live. And so as we rejoice in the freedom that we know in him now, well, shouldn't we desire to share him with others as well? Oh, maybe we're not so much complacent, we just feel ill-prepared. Just don't know where to begin. A brother shared with me in growth group this past week how he, he wants to share the gospel with others. He's got a desire to do that. I just don't feel I'm ready. I'm not prepared. I'm not sure how to go about it. I'm certainly not sure what they're going to say to me in response when I start talking to them about Jesus and his claims. Friends, if that's you, that's, it's your desire to share the good news of Christ with others as it should be, but you don't know where to begin, can I encourage you? We're going to be starting a training next Sunday for the next four Sunday afternoons. Uh, it's going to be, basically, we'll get a group together and we're going to learn a very simple outline, two ways to live. Uh, You'll have seen it in our baptism services. Just for a baptism, we work through it. And it's a a really, really helpful tool for us to be able to share the gospel clearly and faithfully with our friends and to build those meaningful conversations. If you're someone who is desperate to share Christ with others, but just you're not sure where to start, why don't you join us? Come and see me or a member of the pastoral team afterwards, and we can sign you up for that course and tell you more. 
Either way, let's be talking to others about Jesus because that's the way God's building his temple. He's building his kingdom now. And that brings us to our great encouragement as well from Ezra. See, as Judah got to work building the house of the Lord, well, God reigned over the situation in his day to bring that work through to completion. I know it was a little while ago, so let me just remind you of our New Testament reading in 1 Peter. We read there, by God's power, we are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. Even as we rejoice in God and new life with him and his son now, we live in a time of trial. We're still waiting for the fullness of God's kingdom to come when sin and suffering and death will be no more. But Peter encourages us here. Don't you know God is guarding you through faith? Don't you know that as you continue trusting in Jesus each day, no matter what, God is the one keeping you secure? He didn't abandon his own son to the grave. He's not going to abandon you. He will finish the work that he started by his spirit. So that every tatanai that comes along, whether they turn out to be troublesome or not, we can trust that God is watching over us is working in all things, as hard as that is to believe sometimes, is working in all things for our good, both what seems good and not so good, that we might grow up to be more like his son. Some of us here are enduring great trials in our work at the moment. You know, we're facing redundancy, unemployment, we're wondering what does the future hold? Not in a few years' time, but in a few months' time. We just can't understand what God is doing. Why would he cause this to happen now? Some of us are enduring trials in our family, broken relationships, siblings suffering from depression. I don't know what your particular trial is right now, but I know this. God does. He knows exactly what you're going through. His watchful eye is on you, just as it was for Judah, his people, and he is faithful. No matter what, as you trust him and as you put his kingdom first, he will bring you home. Even as this earthly tent of our bodies give way, they will give way to an eternal dwelling. I've been keeping in touch with a brother in Nepal. He lives in Kathmandu, the capital there. And I think all of us, if we didn't know before, know where Kathmandu is now, right? Because it's been in the news. Capital city of Nepal suffered so severely from that terrible earthquake that's caused such devastation just around a month ago. Uh, Here's his latest photo. That's his current accommodation. He's been sleeping together with his wife and his three children under a large canvas for the past 30 days, a full month. I say he's been sleeping. Actually, he's been getting about two hours a night at most because the rest of the time he's awake guarding his family and the little that they have left because there are thieves who are taking advantage of the situation. And this brother no longer has the protection of four walls around him. His earthly home for the moment is a pile of rubble. And you know what Brian is doing as he cares for his family in the midst of this trial? He's telling others about Jesus. He's telling those who are suffering with him, his neighbors, who he can see now because there are no walls to divide them, about the hope that he has in Christ, about an unshakable kingdom that God has promised to all who would trust in his son, no matter what we endure in this life. An eternal home away from the sufferings of this world fallen in sin. Brian is suffering. 
but he is full of faith and joy because he knows that God is faithful and he knows that God is working. And so he wrote in his last message to me on Facebook, thank you for your sweet prayers. Brian's building. He is doing the work of God's new temple and through it, God is bringing many to faith in Christ by his witness. Through that trial, Brian is showing that no matter what, as he remains faithful to Christ, he knows it will turn out for joy. It will turn out for joy. Why? Because Brian knows that there is a higher throne than all this world has known, where faithful ones from every tongue will one day come. And before the sun will stand, made faultless through the Lamb, Believing hearts find promised grace, salvation comes.